Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to today's uh, Cross Mining Cafe session. Uh, we will be talking about legacy system mining. So, yeah, legacy systems are old systems um, that people often don't understand anymore. And Cross Mining can be a way to bring some light into the darkness there. So it's a little bit of a technical topic, but uh, at the same time, a very relevant one. And yeah, so I'm... I'm, I'm very glad um, to discuss this topic here today with two experts on legacy systems. So uh, welcome Steve Kilner from V Legacy. Hi, Steve. Hi, I am. Steve is uh, uh, joining us from Phoenix, Arizona, and we're truly uh, international here today, spread out over the whole world, because our second legacy system expert is uh, Derek Russell from Objectum. Hi, Derek. Good evening, uh, morning, wherever you are. Yes, yeah, because you're joining us from Bangkok, right there. I am. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, uh, thank, thanks a lot, both of you, to, to join us today. We'll, we will get into the topic of legacy systems um, yeah, in, in a second. The last thing I want, to, I want to say just before we start with that is that all of you watching through the live stream, as, usual, uh, as usually you can uh, join us into the discussion, right? We want to make this interactive. We want to talk with you about this topic. So on the website, just below the stream, you can just type in your name and join the chat and ask any questions that come up. And uh, in between the session, we will keep an eye Uh, on yeah, the, the, the comments and the discussions that are popping up there and we will bring them into um, the cafe session while, we're, while we are going on. All right, so let's get started. Maybe it's a good idea to start defining a little bit more like what is a legacy system, what that actually is, what does it mean? Um, yeah, Steve, do you want to take a first step? Sure, sure. I, I think uh, there are a few different ways to look at it. One would be that The system is based on some kind of older technology, whether it's a kind of computer system or a programming language or something, something that's older. Uh, that would be one aspect. Another would be that um, the software typically has become overly complex over time, over many years, as it's been changed, as the organization evolves and uh, more and more changes get made. Um, as somebody said, uh, Software is one of the few things that when you maintain it, it tends to make it worse. Okay. And, um, and another aspect I would say about legacy systems is typically that the people who wrote it originally and designed it may very well be gone. And so some of the original intent that went into the system is no longer there. Uh, it's poorly documented. Um, And so some of the, the knowledge of the system is, is much less than it originally was. So those are some of the aspects of legacy systems. So maybe you just mentioned if you when you maintain it, it gets worse. Can, can you explain why that is or do you have an explanation? Um, yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting, actually. There was a professor at a, a college in the UK who defined what he called the eight laws of software evolution. And he looked at uh, the things that drive the evolution of software over time, and they all tend to make it worse, okay? Um, it was originally designed with a certain architecture that maybe made sense, but then the organization changed a little to adapt to the competitive environment or whatever, and so some patch was thrown onto it, and then more patches get thrown on. So it's no longer, like, architecturally sound. And um, so... It becomes difficult to manage, and 
as somebody said, I think this is one of the most important things about legacy software. It's harder to read a program than to write it, which is kind of backwards of what you would think. But anybody who's tried to maintain a software program that they weren't familiar with can testify to that. It's very hard to just go read a bunch of code and figure out what it's doing or what the intention was. Well, I would say, Steve, even... um, code that you've written yourself i mean i don't know if you've been in a situation where you've written code yourself and you come back in five years two years and you look at it and you think wow who wrote this i don't understand it and you look (laughs) at the top and you find your own name there as the author Um, (laughs) but also picking up on a couple of things you said there for legacy systems i think i would also class them as something people don't want to work on I mean, you often find that people, you know, come out of university these days and they want to work on the latest technology, the latest things, learn the latest things. People just don't want to work on these old legacy systems anymore. And typically, I'm from an aerospace background, so everything's had a lot of rigor behind it, you know, where we've actually gone through, um, you know, rigorous design reviews before you even start moving to code. And I think a lot of these legacy systems were built um, early on to to solve a problem really quickly and the code was kind of put together and they have zero design um which for me in my career is is something that's truly alien and then the last thing you said was about them growing as you maintain it i think the other thing that we've certainly come across at objectum is we find systems with mixed languages so maybe it started off with COBOL and then, ah, okay, now we have this language and we bought this language on. Ah, we have this now, we can bolt this on. And we find systems that are built with multi-languages, um, which is, I, th- I think, are another big problem. I think something you said there a second ago, Derek, about there being no design. Uh, you know, I'm working with a client now, and uh, they describe their system as 30 years of two-week projects. <laughs> okay <laughs> for, for sure i've seen that yeah. yeah for sure yeah and and i think also we 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 talked about this briefly before we went on air that um i think also people don't possess some of the skills anymore you know i think people are leaving universities writing in languages like java and they write the java and they run it and a page comes up on the screen and and there's they don't even know what goes on behind the scenes i think there's fewer and fewer people these days that know about how computers work in terms of assembly code i mean how many people write assembler anymore or even know what the compiler does the fact that it turns a high level language into assembler i i'm not sure how many people even understand that process anymore so i I think that's not a bad description Anne, of what we think a legacy system is all about yeah right so it's a lot of things right it's old software but it's not just about that paradigms shift over time and you can't just update the system and to yeah to make it new uh, according to the new paradigm but it's also languages and yeah, so it's, I think it's, you said no. you said old languages. I think you can probably put old people in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's so it it's, appears to be more a little bit broader than maybe yeah. So for example, in on uh, on the link uh, on LinkedIn, we had a little bit of a discussion after um, the article that you wrote about your approach, Derek, two weeks uh, ago. That uh, once that was published, people had some discussions about what is a legacy system. People are always putting up these photos of mainframes, but but it's yeah. not just mainframes, right? So sure. would you also agree it's broader than broader than that? 
Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you're right that we've, you know, we always put, we do the same thing. We put up a legacy system. We try and find an old black and white picture with the tape reels on it and this kind of stuff. Doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, I know, yeah, yeah, I know applications that run on Windows machines that people, they're critical to the business. They can't really replace them easily, but they're kind of, you know, even VB is obsolete, actually. You know, Visual VB, Basic is sure. there? VB is Visual Basic, or yeah, Visual yeah. Basic, yeah, for sure. Is uh, you know not supported by Microsoft anymore. You know, they've got to move up to .NET versions and all this kind of stuff. So right. it's not old. It's not just old languages like COBOL and RPG and all this kind of stuff. It's actually even stuff that runs on machines we have today. Yeah, you just said critical, right? I think that's one of the aspects is that although these systems are very old, they're often really important, right? And people are scared to touch them. Again, we had this discussion, Steve, before we went on air, that people are terrified to touch them because they're so critical to the business that, you know, and we've seen many clients um, where there's just like one guy that's worked on it for the last 20, 30 years and is the only guy that knows how it works. And he's the guy that you go to to change it if you need to make a change. And they're terrified. It's such a risk for the business. And it's that. Another aspect is that while the software is old and confusing to understand, you don't necessarily know how it's actually being used in the business. Who's using it, when they use it, and what sequence relative to other processes. And and that's where process mining actually comes in and adds a real benefit to understanding that. For sure. And, you know, our technology, what we came up with came out of this because, you know, we've been working on applications that have got 10 million lines of code. And I'm fairly sure that all 10 million lines of code are not used anymore. And so, you know, when you have built these systems, you built another function, built another function. Well, what about the stuff you don't use anymore? That's not taken away. It's still in the build of the software. And so you don't know which parts of the software are obsolete anymore. Um, so hopefully this process mining and mining and looking at the dynamics of the software can help us find out which parts are, are obsolete. Because certainly if you want to migrate to a modern platform, you don't want to migrate the obsolete stuff. Yeah, that's um, that's that's an interesting aspect, right? So if, if only 70% or maybe even 30% of the system are used today, then you don't want to include those 70% that are not used in the new system. So that's one of the goals also. Exactly. So I, I, I got into this after running, uh, we had a three-year project for a large insurance company to enhance their systems. And what I found in that project was the challenge wasn't writing the new code. It was understanding the existing code. Yeah. And that continuously caused us problems in the project of going over our estimates or, or making mistakes with the system that we weren't expected. And so I, I came out of that kind of uh, intent on learning about how can we understand the systems better. And first I got into tools that analyze source code, uh, which is kind of the most common approach. And um, that's called static analysis, where you analyze sort yeah, programs that analyze software, basically. And at some point I realized that that doesn't really tell you the whole story because it doesn't tell you how it's being used. No. Uh, who Again, who uses it, when they use it, and what sequence it's used. And that led me to what's called dynamic analysis, of which process mining is a part of that. And I found tremendously illuminating. And, and when I put this information in front of clients, their eyes just go, oh, that's what happens in the business. 
<laughs> maybe maybe just yeah. before we get into the the process mining possibilities in this space i'm curious to understand a little bit more about how is it if you're just looking at the legacy system space and the challenges that um, companies have with those old systems that nobody understands anymore How, how yeah how do people work with that so you just mentioned code analysis is that the the way this this always works right also maybe looking at the comments from the from the community um maybe we can address them on the way so um talking about old technologies uh one viewer is asking whether that includes databases so i'm maybe also curious who do you do you think databases uh, are included yeah 100% yeah i mean one one of the so for example if you're going to try and migrate a legacy application the databases are a huge part of that um and you know picking up also on what steve just said about using Uh, process logging, process mining for trying to understand what the system does. Obviously, if you are going to migrate a new system, you don't want to do it in a big bang approach. Maybe you want to actually do it piece by piece. And understanding what those pieces are and how big those pieces are is actually a really difficult problem. And uh, a data-centric view based upon those databases is actually uh, a really good approach. But The problem is if you wait for the day you turn the old database off because you've now migrated it to the new database, that day will never come because people are scared of that that day. So um, I think you need to take a process whereby you can actually run the new database and the old database in parallel for a while so that you've got some kind of regression because it's actually very risky to turn that old system off if you haven't fully tested the new system. And you've seen lots of examples of that in, in industry. I mean, the UK National Health Service was a, was a really good example of that migration not going very well. Um, so I think, yeah, taking the database is, is, is a, is a, is a, you must do that. That's that's a really interesting point. So 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 in the in the let's say the best practices in the space, it's one of the things that you would be um, yeah just uh, looking at this project step by step, right? Not all at once. There's not this this one uh, point when the yeah. project switches over, but you really deliberately take this kind of incremental approach. Yeah, and somebody smarter than me came up with a really good analogy for that. And uh, it's an analogy that probably everybody will understand. Imagine you think of your legacy application as a pizza and you take a slice of pizza and you pick the pizza up. You're looking for the slices of pizza with the minimum amount of cheese hanging down onto the other pieces of pizza. You want <laughs> the one good. with the minimum amount of dependencies. Okay, so one of the approaches, actually, if you can go from the database approach, is you want, then want to look for those pieces with the minimum amount of dependencies back to the software. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really good analogy. Um, yeah, and this is something you would do the, through code analysis? Um, we do this through building a static model, building a dynamic model, because without the dynamic model and the execution of the code, just like Steve says, all you're really doing is building a picture. Now, that picture is a good picture. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with a static analysis picture. And if you want to start doing um, you know, tr traceability, so you want to look at something and actually look at the dependencies up the tree, a static model is very good at that. But if you start doing that with object-oriented languages, for example, that doesn't work because you have things like polymorphism and you can't do static analysis and understand which parts of the system are executed purely by doing a static analysis. Mm -hmm. So the dynamic analysis, you must do that um, and then start performing some kind of um, an analysis to start looking at those pieces for sure. Yeah. I, I would also say, I mean, in a sense, it, it's not really the software 
code that matters. It's how it runs the business. For sure. what, yeah. what, what, how it drives what people do in their work and helps them or does things automatically with your customers or business partners. It, it's the activity that's what really matters. And that only comes from the dy- dynamic analysis. Yeah. What, what we actually do, Steve, at the beginning is we normally build a use case model, and that's normally built by sitting and talking to people. Before we even start looking at the code, we actually talk, we go and talk to the people that are using the code and we talk to the systems analysis and we try and build a use case model to understand what it is the system does. I don't care how it does it. We'll, the analysis and the dynamic and the static analysis will do that for us. But what does the system do? And we start by building a use case model and connect everything to that. Right. Um, and, yeah, and we, we actually see a, an example of that, right? A, a small example so we can we can a little bit more understand yeah. exactly how you are you doing that. So just a little yeah. bit later we will we'll be looking we at that. But before we forget I have um yeah one more question also coming from the from the viewers uh, right now is um, still talking and thinking about like how does it in the traditional way how do you understand legacy systems you know without cross mining and what are the best practices in the space does it play a role um for the old system if there's no yeah you know um, if there's no documentation and vendor support anymore do these systems usually still have support is there documentation (laughs) or is this does this play a role i mean I, 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 we've worked with clients that have got uh, huge cobalt estates, for example, and I'm talking millions of lines of code with no documentation yeah. um, and very few people that know how the system works anymore. You know, one of the other things as well that we maybe should have mentioned is there's actually also sometimes a reluctance to move away from the legacy system because the people that are working on them at the moment fear for their jobs. They yeah. don't want to transition to new technology. So quite often we've experienced, alien, we've been alienized when we go in there because people think that we're trying to take their jobs away from them. And um, you're not talking about the programmers, right? You're talking about the users who are using the system, but maybe they know how to use these screens in this particular no, way? More, or? I think more the developers. I mean, okay. because people that are users can often transition from the way it works now to mm-hmm. another way. But the people that are you know, the people that are maintaining these systems, they're at the moment, they're key employees. They have a very important role within the company and you migrate the system and that importance disappears. Um, that's not good for the business, you know. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, traditionally, if there's no design documentation and there's no um, automatic tools, you know, the bottom line is hard work. You know, um, and anybody who thinks that there's some mechanism and there's some magic button they can press and it'll all automate is not true. Sometimes you have to use your brain and it's hard work. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, It's true. The the developers would be threatened. But I I think also users recognizing that typically if you're going to replace one of these systems, um, it's, it's going to involve changing a lot of business processes, especially if you're bringing in, you know, ERP systems like, say, I guess SAP. you're right. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a lot of uh, process reengineering. And that's uh, to some sometimes to your earlier question. And that, that's sometimes a starting point, kind of like uh, Derek was mentioning about use cases, doing process mapping of the of the current business processes. Um, and that's where process mining, I think, is is a tremendous uh, tool to uh, to add to that. Adds a lot of value to that. Um, but but some of these projects involve really a business transformation. Of, yeah, of, that's an know. interesting aspect that I actually didn't think 
uh, about before that much in the context of legacy systems. It's something that we are very used to be aware of in the process mining space because yeah, for any process improvement projects uh, with or without process mining, you always have that challenge, right? That the people who are driving the change, uh, it's a good idea if they are trained and have special skills in kind of change management because people don't want to change. But bringing them um, yeah, in on this journey, involving them early, making sure they feel that this is something that they are part of and um, that's helping them rather than something that's coming from the outside and being put on them is, is really important for the acceptance of the new process. Otherwise, they will just go back to their old, their old way of working. And I, I didn't really realize that this is also a really crucial aspect in yeah, with respect to such an old system, but I can I can see that that's I think a very important point. It is probably where you know a lot of the value is to be gained in these mm -hmm. projects of replacing a legacy system is business transformation, because you have processes that were designed around you know who knows what twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you yeah, need different yeah. skills, not just technical, but also project management and change management skills on the team yeah. to do it well. Right? Yeah. Maybe uh, one other additional kind of follow-up question to what we discussed before, like um, the traditional way of analyzing legacy systems. One of the things I think, Derek, you were mentioning is that you have to do it iteratively, not in one big step, but in many smaller steps, and that you're looking uh, at dependencies. So to to isolate maybe certain um, pieces that can be replaced and then uh, moving bit by bit in this direction. Now, this is within the system. So one of the questions coming from from the chat is like, uh, how do you do this if the legacy system has maybe hidden or unknown integrations to other systems? So it's about these kind of connections, but outside of the system itself. Is, is that something you... Can yeah. So, so I mean, this is exactly why we talked when we were talking about what a legacy system was about maybe having mixed languages where, yeah. um, you know, they had other things bolted on over time. Um, one of the reasons we uh, developed the technology we developed was so that you could actually have the same technology for analyzing multiple different languages so you know if your application is built with like a COBOL and RPG and other technologies we we think they're trying to deal with all of them the same way is the way to go not use one tool for this part of the system and one tool for this part of the system so when we it's the edges that's the, the edges are very important for sure um, and so when we analyze statically analyze the application we actually look at the starting point, the use cases and the entry programs and the endpoints being the database and the edges as well as looking obviously what's what's in the middle. Um, and then when we do the static analysis, we build sequence diagrams that show, you know, kind of what parts of the system call which other parts of the system. And you must look at those things. You know, you, you have to use some brain power and look at the results that come out of these tools. Um, and I think that's a big step that people underestimate, using yeah. your brain to look at these things. Um, one of the guys in our company um, is always mentioned that you need to use your brain. Um, uh, and for sure you do. You know, you can't, you know, a lot of these tool vendors will, will sell you a tool that say, look, you just press a button and it will give you this picture that shows you what your code looks like. Well, okay, great. But you need to do something with that information and that's the bit that's missing I think quite a lot of the time which is why we actually ended up developing this 
addition to our technology for generating these logs to do the process mining because I think you have to do that analysis work to understand. Um, and I think it closes the loop for us because typically we've started with the use cases and we've taken the database as the two ends of the application. But like Steve said, there's another part to it, which is the business processes. Yeah. And I think that was a part that was missing from our technology before. And we've really understood that now that through the dynamic analysis, if you can generate those logs and look at the business process model, you then end up with a what the system must do, what the interfaces and the edges look like, and actually, what do the people do with the software? I think yeah. you need you need all three of those pictures to, to get a, a perfect picture ac- across the landscape, let's say. Yeah. yeah, indeed. So let's let's maybe come to the to the process mining part of this. So I think it has become clear also from the discussion now is that process mining has uh, multiple functions or can help in multiple ways. So on the one hand side, we have this technical aspect that we mentioned before, maybe not not even all the parts of the old systems are used. So you don't want to replicate the 70% that are currently not even used anymore, but focus on the ones that people are using. But even beyond the technical aspect um, to support the the process transformation in the classical understanding the process and how the business has run um, yeah, aspect, process mining can provide this, this insight into the dynamic behavior, right? So I think these are the two maybe that we have identified so far. Is there anything else perhaps that, well, that you I, would I think want the, to add the question is why do you want to do the business process mining as well yeah. it's okay it's great to do it, but what's what are we going to do with the results we get out and i think they have a, a number of uses for us and our clients the use is actually helping them understand which parts they're going to shift when you know because there may be critical parts like we must migrate this part first and understanding from the process perspective what those parts are and which parts of the legacy system implement that process i think is, is really key so i think business process mining has a really good project management um feed as well yeah prioritization mm. for, for example uh, yeah. i think to just a view into the actual work activity in the business that is otherwise can be invisible mm-hmm. in the secret how say an order flows through a business or claims flow through a business and who touches it and when and so on. It, it, there's not typically you know, an intrinsic way to see this information. Yeah. And it gets to be with you, if you're replacing your system, um, you know, the change management process of, of, your, uh, of your workflow that needs to, and so you need to understand what's happening now and where you're going to, that needs to be managed and training needs to take place. But actually, yeah. you know, it's possible that what comes out of the process mining means there's no change to the software, but just the change in the way people work. For example, like through the process mining, you might discover that an invoice invoices are getting stuck somewhere for a long period of time or they're getting rejected and, you know, have to be resubmitted again, rejected and resubmitted. And that all takes time and it costs money. That may not even be a change to the software. It just may be a change to the way the business does their processing. And you can't see that. You know, you can't see that without the picture that you get out of Disco that shows you where you might be getting stuck. Yeah, that's the the classical cross-mining, understanding the process use case, right? Mm -hmm. What what cross-mining is is made for yeah mm. exactly so um well if we want to apply process mining then the next question is of course how do we 
do that, right? And there's, um, yeah, there, 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 there are different approaches to do that. For example, quite early on, I had actually, um, yeah, a nice, uh, I saw a nice example. I can uh, yeah, share the pointer when we publish the recording in a week or two and include those links uh, for those of you who want to take a look. There was, I think, as early as 2011 or 2012, uh, we had a case study on the blog where an Australian consultant who was working for an Australian government agency, um, he was working with Prom, he knew about cross mining from the from the research world and um, they had these systems uh, they were running there and nobody understood how they were working uh, and they had to document because they wanted to replace the system so it's exactly the use case that we're talking about here but what he saw is that this system this particular government system that he was looking at actually did have logs so they created apparently some form of transaction logs maybe workflow logs or something that were quite suitable more or less exactly Yeah, uh, how the way they were recorded, they could immediately transform them just a little bit and um, use them to discover the processes. And then they were able to do something that would have taken them months to do manually by inspecting the code, by just analyzing the, the transaction logs. I mean, that's the, the perfect situation, of course, that you have um, log data that is that usable. But I think still, even if it's a little bit more difficult, um, looking at existing logs, either in transaction logs or in databases, creating event logs out of these existing systems is one of the ways that you can go, right? And uh, do I remember correctly, Steve, this is also the the route that you took when you looked at um, some IBM systems a few years ago. Is this, is this right? So it started out looking at uh, the log information that was available in the system um, as a means to track how things like orders or purchase orders flowed through the system, the sequence of events and the timing. Of, um, yeah, and then so, th so that's kind of one whole category as a source of information or the, uh, in this particular case of the IBM systems, any changes to the database are written to a log file with the timestamp and who made the change and what program made the change and then an image of the data that was actually changed. So it's, that's a really valuable set of information to understand how, say, an order is being processed. Uh, an order may be represented in uh, 50 different tables in the system. And if, if you have logging information from all those tables, you can pull all that together and do your typical kind of data organization and and cleansing what and kind of system were you looking at can you can you these are ibm sy uh, mm -hmm. ibm systems um this is for like a, a large retailer mm -hmm. um and uh so that's that's part of what i did was to find us uh, say an order is represented in all these different tables or a purchase orders in all these different tables and then pull the log information for each of those and bring it all together and then feed that into process mining and it it really gives you a view of how things work flows through the organization yeah and you actually brought us uh, an anonymized sample from uh, exactly this type of ibm um, system type of data that you can get out after this this transformation so right we can we can actually share it here with uh, with uh, With the viewers, so let me just bring up the the example on the slide. Can you sh yeah? Can you see? Yeah, the yeah. slide is visible. So this is what you were explaining before, right? So this is kind of the database. Is it really like database tra 
it's transaction logs or something? It's, it's a log happen? of all the changes to the database. Mm -hmm. And so this is just a little example uh, of like what you would see. There's a timestamp and then what table was affected, like mm -hmm. the purchase order header. And the record was inserted um, or there's the image before it was updated, then after updated. And then there's a delete, can be a delete image. Then who did it? Uh, the, the user, job, Mary, Tom, or, or maybe this, something in the system did it. Mm -hmm. Then a particular program that made the change and then an actual image of the data that was involved. And so, so that, that's what I was working with in, in this IBM system um, is this across, like I said, you know, many different tables and, and pulling it all together. Yeah. And to take a look at what then comes out of it. So if we look at the anonymized sample that you shared with us in Disco, we can just see, yeah, basically the similar structure, right? So the, the case, what would that be then? The, the purchase order? Yes, that's like the purchase order. Right. And then the activity name is... Is like what a is program. That's, that's a like program? a program name. That's a program name. Yeah. And then a little description of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was something that you had to manually add, right? This description wasn't in the right. system. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly the same situation again. It doesn't go automatically, but you have to look at it with understanding of the system to add this kind of meaning, right? Yeah. Yeah. It takes some work to put all that together. Right. And the resource and the timestamp. And so once we yeah, import that, I think we, yeah, well, how many do we have? Let's make it a little bit simpler here, for example. Just looking at the 50%, for example, the cases. Yeah, we can we can see for just, th yeah, 399. So this is 400 cases. So it's a small data sample, but yeah, already gets quite complex. But we can see... Basically, the, it's the process flow relating to this, um, yeah, the, per, the processing of the purchase order, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we can see certain finalization steps. Also, yeah, some of the steps appear to happen all the time or almost all the time. And there's some lower frequent ones like item maintenance. Um, right. So, so if you're if you're familiar, I mean, if you if you're in this particular organization and you're familiar with the purchasing process, you look at this, and you're going to see some things that maybe you didn't understand, uh, like you just mentioned. Oh, they actually do item maintenance sometimes as part of this, you know, very occasionally, um, and some other things. And, and so, so seeing the steps and also seeing the relative frequency of these things. <laughs> really tells you a lot about what's going on, how people process, process as purchase orders. Yeah. yeah. And that's a little bit like, like Derek, what you were saying before. So the, the use case of maybe here, it's not even about replacing the system. It's just understanding about how the process works, right? So in this case, if we wanted to see, for example, just maybe understand like the performance um, dimension and see where does it take a lot of time, for example, we could look at... Um, yeah, the bottlenecks in this process, and then we would, for example, see like that would be kind of a typical cross money analysis that you see. For example, okay, one of the big um, bottlenecks here is after actually archiving um, the process until some kind of uh, master data updating update that is happening. So maybe from a, if I'm doing this analysis from a more understanding the process and process analysis perspective, maybe that's not so relevant. Maybe after the archiving that regularly there's some master data updates happening, maybe that's not something that I want to um, yeah, include in my analysis, right? So for example, then in the process mining tool, I would actually remove that step and uh, focus on yeah, the other steps. 
and then uh, actually the the bottlenecks that are now relevant for this process come out much more clearly, right? Where I can see, for example, if I zoom in a little bit, um, there's appears to be like one of the two biggest bottlenecks before yeah, some kind of uh, revisions. So there seems to be some rework going on here and here there's some kind of scheduling and receiving stuff going on. So, yeah, so I think this is a nice illustration of a classical um, kind of cross-mining use case, maybe looking at it. With synchronized times just to see and i think what steve i think what steve said was important i mean mm -hmm. when you when you look at these pictures if you're not in that business space they kind of yeah. don't make a lot of sense but if you are in that business they those pictures make a lot more sense um you know because people start to understand that the the language and yeah we do this and oh, yeah then, then we do that and they can probably they can probably spot their jobs and what they do on those on those diagrams um so i think these diagrams make a lot more sense to the people in the business that they're that they're modeling right yeah and, and then they look at one of those things and they say well who did that right yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah. that's when you can drill down and go back and look at the data and say oh it was this person this person on this date and yeah this yeah. po why did they do it right <laughs> yeah so that's a classical indeed the cross mining use case where we yeah, want to understand how, not how the system is used necessarily, but mostly like how's the process running and where can we improve it, and that's yeah something that is possible even for yeah IBM systems. Well, although the data isn't readily available, right? That's basically I think the the main point here. Yeah. Yes. But then the next question is, what do you do if you don't have any data at all, right? So this is um, yeah where you have to do some sort of instrumentation. And this is, I think, the approach um, that you were describing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Derek, where you uh, already told us that you basically start with a use case model, right? So this, I uh, have the image up here. Maybe you can talk us through the approach okay. a little bit. So this, this diagram here is showing us at the bottom a use case model. So we would, we would talk to the business and the analysts, the users, and we would build a use case, which is those ellipses, elliptical symbols at the bottom with the name in the middle, and they specify what it is the system is supposed to do. What we then do is we um, have developed parsing technology. It parses source code, but it does more than just parse the syntax of the source code. Because we work with the customer we can understand how they've written the code because okay it may be written in a language like COBOL but COBOL's not used the same in every different company people employ it differently maybe they have naming conventions right and a typical static analysis tool doesn't care about naming conventions it just cares that you know a COBOL program has a name what we can do is we can actually make meanings out of those things so by talking to our clients and looking at naming conventions or coding standards or something like that we can pull extra information out from the application so this diagram you see here um, is the use case model and then we've parsed the source code and built a model in uml now this is in sparks enterprise architect which is one of the many commercially available uml tools on the market uh, all of them have apis so we can generate these models automatically so we've actually parsed the source code um, and 
what we've then done is we've produced this model automatically, but we've connected the use cases to the starting programs. That's a piece of manual work because you won't automatically or you won't necessarily know where the program starts for each of those flows. So the piece of work you have to do here manually is connecting the use cases to where it starts. But all of those other dependencies we can automatically create when... Um, we generate the static model and we generate this static model from the source code and from the database schemas as well. So we try and analyze the database schemas and build a data model that's got a picture of what the databases look like with all the fields and the tables. And if they have the queries and the stored procedures built into the databases, we look at those and we can put those in as well. So that diagram there is a typical static analysis picture um, connected to a use case model. Yeah. What we then do, have you got the next slide there? And yeah. yeah, so what we then do is at the same time as we parse the source code, we actually understand where all the beginning of all the programs are, the beginning of each of the operations, where they start, where they end. And we instrument the source code and we put a little marker in there that calls back to us and says, I'm here now, I'm here now, I'm here now. So in a day, it, we, we basically keep a record of all the modules, all the operations that are available, the line number they are, and all, all, all the information about the source code. We, we, ke we keep that. And then we instrument the source code and when we run the source code, we can then capture that information in a log and produce a sequence diagram like this. So this is a dynamic picture that shows messages passed between objects over time. So this is effectively showing one program calling another program over time. So this is an incredibly valuable um, picture that actually shows how the code actually executes. Um, yeah, that's the first dynamic view, right? Where you have that's the first dynamic view, yeah. yeah. Um, and again, that's an automatic step. So there's no manual part here. We we produce the we instrument the source code when we analyze it, and then we recompile it. We run it. We get a log, and we from that log we can produce these these uh, dynamic pictures. Mm -hmm. Let's say. So just to clarify, so it's it's a mix of some things can be automatically extracted out of the system, but then you also have. Like, bef like we discussed before, you need to um, yeah, understand the use cases, but also yeah, based on the domain knowledge, you do these annotations, right? So this is yeah. then after building the dynamic model, yeah. actually, so what, this what is a manual do, step, right? Yeah, so what we next do, Anne, so that picture you saw there is, a, is an automatic step. What we then do is we annotate that sequence diagram. Yeah. So this is where you have to do some work with your brain. So we look at it and somebody who understands the software can annotate it and say, ah, okay, that operation call there represents the start of a process. Okay. And we can mark that up in the model. So we've generated a profile for the model. So it's easy for them to do it. We actually just apply something on the model. We give them a little text box where they can put this process name in and that actually goes into the model. So we can start annotating the, um, the diagrams a little bit like Steve was saying the work he had to do was with the database to put the descriptions in there so that you can actually understand yeah. okay here so, so we're for example this is a this is a hotel management system right the example yeah. that you were using a simple hotel management system so for example one of the steps that a person might want to do as a, from a user perspective with the system would be to make a reservation so that's why here on the right side in yellow you would insert make reservation as the activity name that you would want to see yeah 
right? And yeah. so, so should we, we, we show the a, next? We would, we would put a little marker on the line to say this is the start of a process. When you do that, you get that box, and then yeah. you can actually put the name of the process in there. Right. Now, once we've done that, um, we then use the information from the sequence diagrams to re-instrument the source code again with our business process logging information. And then we actually instrument the code again, we build it, and now we can run it. And now when we run it, we can actually capture all of the all of the markups that we put in that dynamic picture and produce a log. Um, and the log that we produce is very similar to the log that Steve showed you with everyone has a case ID, a time, the start of a process, and all these kind of things. So as you use the system and you make a reservation, it automatically produces this log. Yeah. So, so that's, in the that's instrumented system, right? So the system is running uh, exactly as it's before. It's behaving the same way, but it has this built-in instrumentation that so that now when you press this button, for example, new reservation, it triggers the make reservations step because that's yeah. the meaning that you have attached to the exactly. instrumentation. And then that process log is what we then feed into uh, Disco which I think yeah. you have a picture of, something like this. And then from that from that step, we can kind of build a picture like that. I can't really read it very well, but yeah, yeah. make reservation there. Yeah, uh, it's on the right. And, and yeah. again, interestingly, when we ran this, um, you know, you, it was interesting that you suddenly started looking at it and go, wow, I didn't realize how many reservations were canceled. Yeah. Well, well, you can do something about that. Why is that? Well, I, yeah. I don't know. Why, why is that? Um, but... And again, the lights come on, you know, you suddenly get a picture about what's what's really going on. So that's a really quick overview of, of how we generate a process log if the legacy application doesn't have logging information. Yeah, thank you for that. And it, it indeed it shows, I think, again, both both use cases. So the one use case is understanding the system, like, oh, do we have a lot? Why are we canceling so frequently or like in the purchasing uh, process before? Why are we making so many revisions? Uh, but also like um, completely correctly, like someone from the chat added, well, it's but it's not just that, but you can also see um, which programs are more used and which are less used and which are use, not used at all. Right. So I think It, it appears to be in this legacy system space. We always have this kind of dual use case where we, on the one hand side, can understand how the system is actually used, which parts of the system are used, yeah. uh, or and yeah, do we can can we actually improve something about the process? Yeah, I mean, another thing that we done with the with that dynamic picture that you saw, because we now know what all the operations are and we know which ones have been executed because it calls us back and says, "Hey, I'm here. Hey, I'm here." We have a coverage we have a coverage dashboard that actually shows us well from this object here or this program here, some of the operations are never called or, you know, these, these, these ones are called a lot. Or, and we can start actually using that for understanding the obsolete, you know, we can actually build a picture of which ones are never called. So if you've actually executed all your use cases and you suddenly go, well, all of this bunch here has never even been called. Well, why is yeah. it there? Yeah. Exactly. Well, one other thing I'm, I'm interested in. So you are, uh, Derek, what you have been doing here is you're building these models, static, dynamic, and then you built the in, in, um, instrumentation based on yeah. these models. But uh, I remember, Steve, uh, at some point in time, you told me about a project where you were also using instrumentation. So not like the, the IBM example that you showed, uh, discussed before, but actually you were building in uh, some instrumentation for for a client by instrumenting, I think, the menu well, calls or something like that, right? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. Um, I, actually, I think what we were looking at there is an example of, 
so that if you use the database logging information, that tells you when people are updating data. It doesn't tell you when they're just looking at data. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so that's where we added instrumentation in the programs where they're just looking at data. And, and so then we combine that with the database uh, logging, and that, that, that's really the most powerful view, right? You, you got it all then together, instrumentation data plus your database logging data. You're really seeing all the work activity yeah. that's going on in the business. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what was the reason for you to make this instrumentation for, for this client? Well, it was first to understand the existing system for support purposes mm-hmm. and, and maintenance. Uh, at this point, it's become about replacing the system. And um, as, as part of that, like, like we were talking about earlier, you know, process transformation, understanding how they currently work. I mean, because if you think about it, in, in, uh, depending on the, uh, the particular industry, most of the work in a business might be occurring in the computers, right? Not done by people, especially like in financial services. Oh, yeah. That's right. Most of the work is done in computers. Um, and, and so that's, this, this is where all the information is about what's happening. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Actually, Steve, we we did a some a, a big job actually on a bid COBOL application, and we ended up actually with a big piece of work that we didn't really think about in the first place, which was all the batch processing, all the batch processing work that goes on at night time when all the people yeah. have gone home. That was like seventy five percent of the processing that was going on. Um, so without capturing that, you lose a big part. You're absolutely right. It's, that's exactly the experience we had. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. You, you, we often focus on the the human centric processes with process mining, but sometimes there are also interesting examples. For example, at uh, one of our process mining camp um, uh, presentations, um, uh, I think it was, I think it was the Van der Lande, um story where they they built kind of packaging systems uh, and also. Yeah, so so package handling, automatic package handling systems, and they were in a kind of a support uh, call. Um, yeah, there was something going wrong, and by looking at the loggings, they could see that actually the, the delay to a, one of their ERP systems was causing um, the packets to loop, you know, more than once because they weren't fast enough to give the answer back, basically to give the correct routing destination where they should go in the in the whole automated sorting system. So it, it's like that there was an article this was written a number of years ago but uh it's called something like the second economy and the second economy is basically machine to machine computer to computer across all these businesses through APIs and EDI and all these things there's a whole economy running between all these systems of all these companies all around the world yeah I don't know how much process mining has been applied across companies. Do you know, Anne? Is that something that's been done very much? Well, the, it, it, what does happen is that if you look, if you're looking at the process from an end-to-end perspective, it often, very often, is the case that it's not just one team, surely not one person, but also not one team, but that multiple teams or different, sometimes even different organizations are working together to deliver the end product or service for for the customer right so but it's if you take this end-to-end process view and the collaboration that organizations have in yeah carrying out this process together um you can take this perspective and i remember one interesting uh, scenario where this was particularly useful there was it was an electronics manufacturer in germany 
who was um, handling the refund process for their electronics product. So if you're returning kind of, for, I don't know, a broken MP3 player or something, it first goes to a repair center. And then um, if it can't be repaired, ultimately the customer gets their money back, right? So in this refund process where the customers basically apply to receive their, their money back in the ref as a refund, um, there were so many different parties involved. So the electronics manufacturer, obviously, um, yeah, it was their customer. So they had the biggest interest and they were kind of providing the service workflow platform that everyone was using to fulfill the process. But the parties involved were call centers. They were all outsourced call centers who were, because you could initiate this refund by calling the call center, you could also do it through the internet or going to the dealer where you bought the product in the first place. So all the dealers, all the shops where, you know, these electronics products were sold, uh, sold they were part um, of the system. And then you have repair shops, which all were their own companies. So all of these different companies together They <laughs> fulfilled this process, but the electronics manufacturer was um, having, you know, the, the damage if the process wasn't going well, because then customers, consumers going to the Internet complaining about the brand could, you know, do serious damage to them. So uh, being able to use that log data from that workflow platform to see where the bottlenecks are really helped them to then also renegotiate contracts with these external parties to make sure that the process was running um, better in the future. So, yeah, it is an interesting. I think aspect. that's a frontier of process mining is, you know, cross organizational yeah. data gathering and analysis. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So maybe also we were, yeah, we were talking about the different approaches, like either using existing data, either log data, if odd logs are there or transaction logs are there or pulling it out of the database like you did, Steve, and instrumentation as a second approach, if no data is there at all to make the software in a new version where it actually records data that we want to see. Um, maybe one question a little bit towards the end could be, are there other approaches, right? So for example, uh, in the LinkedIn discussion, there were some some other ideas also that maybe observing how people click or, you know, that there could be different approaches. Yeah. They used to be called screen scraping. I don't know if they still use that phrase screen scraping anymore, but they used to monitor the um, basically the, the, the clicks and the button presses that people were making on the screens uh, on when they used to start looking at legacy applications that didn't have this stuff. I think that was before I'd even heard of process mining. That that's what people used to used to do. Have you heard of that before, Steve? Screen yeah, and I think actually in in the previous uh, process mining cafe and. Uh, I don't, somebody was in the UK was talking about they were monitoring how users were using the website, right? And if they were navigating it correctly, if it had been designed, you know, so people could easily understand how to navigate it. I thought that was a pretty interesting use. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah there yeah. was a, there was a question actually in the in the LinkedIn conversation about it, wasn't there? Somebody said, "What happens if you don't have source code?" Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the questions that yeah. came up. Um, well, you can't instrument if you don't you have the source instrument. code. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but what what do they also mean about? I I wasn't quite sure whether when they asked if you don't have source code, did they mean the end users don't get the source code, or because somebody probably has the source code, right? I mean, the companies usually have the source code, right? They would. It's they would unusual have. that they've lost it. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. it's a fairly unusual uh, picture, so yeah. they normally have it. But you know, there are techniques available for capturing application. You know, hooks, you know, I think Windows even has a, a, an offering for that where you can actually capture the hooks. So it's not necessarily the, the best way of doing it, but there are techniques available if you don't have the source code.
Yeah. Yeah. So one of the questions also from the chat is like, I think a little bit related to that, uh, which says, how do you capture contextual data such as events external to any system, but important to the process at hand? So again, the, the whole discussion about different systems interacting with each other and these ex external interactions being also um, part of the whole of the whole systems functionality. I well, the dynamic model will capture yeah. that. I mean, if you've if you've okay. instrumented the code and you're doing the dynamic model, obviously, if the event comes in, something will handle that event. And if the event handler is instrumented, that that will get picked up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got you got to get a log record somehow uh, at some point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and and you know what is there isn't a one size fits all. You know that every single legacy application is kind of different in our experience. You know. Two, two implementations of COBOL are, are, are so different. It's unbelievable. You know, you can't just go, okay, it's a COBOL program. We're going to do this. It doesn't work like that because the way it was developed, the, the way it's implemented, they're, they're different things. Um, so, right. Yeah. Yes. We, I just uh, saw that we got an interesting comment about the, referring to the screenscaping uh, additional method that we that we mentioned before. What could you do if you don't have logs, if you can't do instrumentation, looking at screens and button clicks um, that people do just, you know, from the outside. Uh, and Ian is com completely right. This is, I think, uh, closely related to the whole concept of RPA, right? Robotic Process Automation, where companies today are doing that, looking from the outside at, at the existing the implications they're not making any attempt to um, you know go into the system to understand the source code or to understand how it works or even to get data or log data out of the system they just look at how the systems are being used uh, from the outside and logging on a very fine granular level like where people click and what they're doing and then mm -hmm. trying to use that to build these kind of uh, software robots on top who can then automate part of that Yeah, that's, that's that's a very interesting idea. I mean, you were asked a few minutes ago, Anne, is, is there another approach but besides logging and instrumentation? I, I think there you go. There's a there's a third approach. Yeah, so yeah. that's exactly. I think that's the third approach, and that's what company companies are doing today more and more. One of the challenge then is there that you actually offer before you can do process mining, you have to do something that is called task mining, uh, which is um, basically a pre-processing step because the data that you get from these kind of RPA uh, logging environments it's very detailed and you, you can imagine that very easily right every time you click you fill in a field on some kind of screen or you click a button uh, that by itself it doesn't have any meaning so if you would just put that uh, into a post mining tool even you wouldn't be able to do any meaningful analysis so basically what people are doing is that they do some sort of pre-analysis which is called task mining where they actually try to cluster these low-level events into activities that are meaningful on a process mining or a process analysis level. So after doing this pre-processing step with task mining, you, you then can get to a data set that is suitable for process mining again. So that would be kind of a third route. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because that's an outside-in approach, right? That's mm -hmm. looking from the outside into the system and looking at that edge. What's interesting is when we take the inside-out approach like we do, we actually filter out all of those things, you know, all the mouse moves and the clicks and all that kind of stuff. It's noise that we don't really want to see. So it's interesting that from the inside approach, you don't want to see that stuff. But from the outside approach, that's what you're going to use to actually do the mining. That's all you have, um, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. That, and that, again, is using your brain to understand what do I have now, what's available, yeah. and how, do, how can I use that information for doing what I need to do. 
Yeah, mm. exactly. Now, maybe maybe to close, I'm curious. Uh, so both of you are yeah clearly um, have worked in the whole legacy system space, uh, have heard about cross mining, and clearly see that there's a use and a match there. But um, yeah, it's it's not it's not very well known in the in the community, or is it? I would say no. I mean, I, I'd no. be honest. This this is fairly new for us. The technology that we have for doing this static analysis, dynamic analysis, etc. This this technology we've been using on legacy system for you know ten years now. Um, but the application of it in process mining is totally new. You know, using a dynamic view for generating those logs that's new for us. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'd be honest, it wasn't something that we came up with. It was actually something that one of our partners said, "Your technology is perfect for doing this." And then we started looking at process mining, and 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 yes, it was. So we added this part on on to do it. So we're not really process mining experts as such. Um, you know, I I think for us we would provide the technology for generating these logs and leave it to experts like you guys for actually analyzing the the, the pictures that come out um, at, at the end of it. Um, I think who's using the prosmining tool is an interesting question because, yeah, like we uh, discussed with you, you would be building this instrumentation, then the application could produce those logs, but you would not be the ones using the prosmining tool to analyze. It would be rather on the client side where people have the domain knowledge. But I think, Steve, for example, you would be able in some projects probably to use a prosmining tool to support a client with a particular problem, for example. Or do you think they would do this themselves? Or who would be using process mining in this whole area? Um, I, I think at this point, it's, you know, you got to have some knowledge of, of how to do this. And mm. plus, there's, there's a lot of work getting the data really organized um, to really give you the information that, that you need. Like, you know, like you demonstrated just quickly in, in looking at that example, you filtered out a couple things and something and that, that made it much more clear, right? And yeah. that takes some knowledge about process mining and some experience. Yeah. 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 Okay, so the people in the legacy system world who could benefit from this, they you know, would need to spend a little bit of time to learn more about process mining if they wanted to use this. Yeah, it, 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 it's something that eventually will get more widely adopted, I think, but it's going to take yeah. a while. But yeah. you know, it helps that so there's a tool like Disco that's very intuitive to use, just to give you yeah. some credit here. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, when, when we was doing this, we, we uh, you know, spoke with, um, you know, Fluxicon and we got Disco, and it was very quick for us to generate something uh, that, that was meaningful. So yeah, I, I I agree. Yeah, and then that's that's great to hear. And then you then you still have to do the work and look at it with the yeah a human or how did you say before, Derek? You have to use some brain. <laughs> yeah, you have to use your brain. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Very very well. So I uh, thanks so much for, uh, to both of you. Uh, for coming on. I really enjoyed this discussion. I think it's a really interesting use case for process mining. Like I said, we very early on, we had some first examples from this uh, Australian government organization. And uh, I always thought there, you know, there's so much more opportunity, but I don't see that many people actually really applying it in this space. So maybe we could um, yeah, make some people interested here today who find this and yeah, can either contact us or you and find some inspiration to try this on their own legacy systems, right? To 
applied For there. Sure. Is there anything else that you wanted yes. to say before we close? No, I think I'm. No, uh, no I think I've said everything. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Well, thanks, thanks a lot for uh, again once more for joining us here today at this Prosmining Cafe. Thank you all um, who uh, joined us live in the in the stream. Um, we will yeah, publish the recording one or two weeks from now on the blog. So keep an eye on that if you want to rewatch and include the links that we were mentioning throughout the session. And we will be back with another Prosmining Cafe um, about one month from now on Tuesday, the twenty third of March and we will be talking about post mining in healthcare. Um, thanks. See you then. Thanks again, Derek Thank and you. Steve. Thank okay. you all for watching. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you. Nice, Bye. nice to chat with you, Steve. Yes. You too, Derek.